Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. It's time for Midday Edition on KPBS. From encampment bans to rising rent, we are talking about San Diego's housing crisis and the solutions on the table. I'm Jade Hindman. Here's to conversations that keep you informed, inspired, and make you think. Why some lawmakers and advocates are pushing for housing density requirements being able to build smaller, more affordable by design, cuts the sales price in half, and have been shown in numerous studies as a way to increase home ownership rates in California. Plus, what's behind Blackstone buying up affordable housing around town? And do cities have the resources to support encampment bans? We'll explore it on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. We hear it all the time. California is in the midst of a housing crisis. Many see increased housing density as a solution But that's not popular with everyone. A new state law, however, could drastically change the landscape of housing in San Diego, one of the first cities in the state to opt in. Joining me now with more on this is Mohamed T. Alameldin, a policy associate for the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley. Mohamed, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me, Jade. So San Diego will become one of the first cities in the state to opt into Senate Bill 10. Can you remind us what Senate Bill 10 is, what this means, and what changes this could bring? Senate Bill 10 was passed around two years ago, and um, it provides local governments the ability to zone up to 10 units per parcel in transit-rich or urban infill areas. Uh, The locality can choose to opt into the law, but it's seen as a way for localities to have the power to streamline the process to build up to 10 units in usually formerly exclusionary areas in the state. And home ownership seems like an unreachable goal for so many people. Uh, Do you think Senate Bill 10 will help expand those opportunities? 
Yes, definitely. So at the Turner Center, we've had a number of papers on how to increase um, home ownership. Um, we had an analysis on missing middle housing, which is houses two plexes to 40 plexes. And we found that smaller homes bunched together around 1400 square feet were very popular to be entry like starter homes in the United States until the 1970s, when most of them have been deemed illegal. And they're less than 10% of the housing production that's being done right now. These homes are affordable by design because they're smaller. A study conducted by California community builders found that in six Bay Area cities, that by adopting laws like SB 10 and allowing these smaller homes to be built, the sale price for these homes is about half of what you would find for a single family home. And that's just building up to four units. Um, we've also found in a recent study on home ownership that we've conducted, if we produce the same amount of homes as has been done in the rest of the country, our lack of home ownership would decrease by 48%. So California would have still been unaffordable, but it wouldn't take until the age of 49 for people, for more than 50% of the population to be homeowners. That number would be closer to around 40. So being able to build smaller are more affordable by design, cuts the sales price in half and have been shown in numerous studies as a way to increase home ownership rates in California to create more stability for communities. Prior to opting into this law, what has San Diego been doing in recent years to, to really boost the supply of housing? So San Diego has been one of the leaders in the housing space. A lot of what San Diego adopts is later just replicated at the state level. Examples being um, limitations to parking, like eliminating parking minimums in transit-rich areas, which later became state law. Um, increases within density bonus law, which allowed more housing units to be built if they built a certain amount affordable um, to low or moderate incomes. And um, they're really paving the way when it comes to accessory dwelling unit um, construction. The ADU bonus program is seen as like the gold standard for accessory dwelling units and programs like Complete Communities and how San Diego has worked with builders to build more housing is seen as the ideal partnership for other parts of the state. The issue is that all of these laws that have been passed within San Diego, or let's say all of these initiatives made by San Diego allowed for just renter homes to be established. So it's more pathways for us to have more community builders. So how likely is this approach to actually work converting old properties into housing? It could be converting old properties into housing. It could be tearing down a few homes and building up to 10 homes um, on that parcel. We're not sure how well it could work. We're hoping for San Diego to adopt it so we could learn from it and maybe improve it. So San Diego taking this step, as it usually does um, in California, is vital for us to see how effective Senate Bill 10 is and if any improvements need to be made for the bill to be more effective. You're listening to Midday Edition on KPBS. And we're talking housing policy with Mohamed D. Alameldin, a policy associate for the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley. 
I mean, I'm just curious from your perspective, like um, given the way that things are already developed, how things are already built, do you see any challenges to building um, denser housing with those walkable communities that are so important to have? Yes, definitely. Um, So the first step is changing the zoning, um, changing zoning policy when it to allow for more homes to be built. Second, there needs to be more flexible design standards. The minimum unit size must be smaller. Um, The heights of these buildings must be a little taller. Um, There must be uh, floor area ratio must be more permissible for more development. Um, There's a lot that goes past zoning that needs to be tackled, especially if we want to increase homeownership rates. Third, after zoning and flexible design standards, um, for projects to pencil, localities or builders need to build more than two to three units. We've seen Senate Bill 9 build about seven homes in, uh, are in the process of building seven homes in San Diego. San Diego's ADU bonus program, where the average project size is about eight or nine, is building nearly 500 more homes than Senate Bill 9. So by allowing more units, more projects could pencil. Finally, a clear and efficient approval process with the local government is essential for things to work. The longer projects delay, the more they cost and the more people don't get paid because we use private financing in this country. People expect payments so then they could pay their contractors and so on. And localities need to really work to get, work with their utilities and with local agencies to ensure, like, if a project is built, the electricity can turn on and they don't have to deal with the utility company for six months. So really, it's these three things. Like, you have to make sure that these projects pencil. And the first step is zoning. Hmm. And you kind of touched on it, but uh, what about the matter of of infrastructure? Can cities really accommodate a boom in development that existing infrastructure will support? So that's a great question. Um, How we are currently building in San Diego will strain infrastructure. The advantage of Senate Bill 10 is that these are homes for homeownership. And they deal with Subdivision Map Act, and they deal with other tools that localities could use to charge fees to pay for services. And also, one home becoming 10 homes brings in a lot more money to local governments. The American Enterprise Institute, the complete opposite of UC Berkeley, did a study of 100 metropolitan areas, and it found that With housing types that are legalized through Senate Bill 10, that are still here from like the 1950s, they give so much more to a city's tax base and they help utility companies so much because the infrastructure isn't laid out very far. It's closer together and it's easier to maintain. And the city, instead of getting the property taxes of one home, they get property taxes for six to 10 homes, suddenly they have a lot more um, money in the bank. And these being new homes, new home ownership units, their Prop 13 value set from now instead of from the 1970s. So even though these the people in these housing units 
pay a lot more in property taxes. It is a benefit for city to up upkeep infrastructure and improve infrastructure by building housing units. And how much of San Diego is currently zoned for single family housing? Uh, about 70% of San Diego's urban areas. Mm. Do you think we're at a point where we need to fundamentally rethink what cities look like to accommodate this drastic need for housing? If we if we are going to solve this housing crisis and for families to stay together and not live in different states and for communities to thrive and for artists and um, service workers and people to live within a community, we have to take we have to look at what other countries have done to solve this crisis. Right. My little brother is staying in the middle of Paris. He lives in a 400 square foot studio but he pays a thousand dollars a month, right? Like by building, by rethinking how our cities look right now, the way we're building our cities where it's either single family homes are the only way to own a home, or you have to live in a 50 plus unit rental. You were creating an economically segregated society. And in the next 20 years, if you weren't able to buy the single family home now, no one in your family will be able to do that 20 years from now. And it's because we do not have that missing middle. Those smaller home types, up to 10, up to 20, in urban areas where people could walk, bike, use public transit, and still live in a thriving community. And this is great for business. This is great for local governments and their tax base. And this creates more connected communities. I've been speaking with Mohammed T. Alameldin, a policy associate for the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley. Mohammed, thank you very much for your insight. Uh, thank you so much, Jade and KPBS for having me. What do you think about SB 10 and the proposal to increase housing density? We'd love to hear from you. Give us a call, 619-452-0228. You can leave a message or you can email us at midday at kpbs.org. Coming up, how one company is driving the cost of rent up. If they can raise the rent just high enough that it's out of somebody's reach, so they have to leave, then they can flip that unit to, and make it much higher rent on the next tenant. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman.
Affordable housing has long been seen as a key component in solving California's ongoing housing crisis, but a buying spree of lower-income properties by a major investment firm is raising more than eyebrows for local tenants. It's raising rents. Joining me now with more on this story is CalMatters reporter Wendy Fry. Wendy, welcome back to Midday Edition. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Wendy, let's start off with the landlord in question here, and that's Blackstone. A lot of people know them as an investment firm, but they're also substantial property owners. Uh, Tell me about that. Right. So uh, Blackstone is the world's biggest private equity firm. It's also one of the biggest single real estate owners in the world. They own probably 100,000 rental units across the U.S. They also own hotels, warehouses, European resorts. Uh, So they're a huge firm and a big player in real estate. And they've been at this for a while. So how did they come to purchase so much property here in San Diego? Right. So in May 2021, Blackstone was planning to purchase these 66 residential complexes in San Diego. Uh, The properties were known as naturally occurring affordable housing, which means rental homes that are affordable without federal subsidies. Uh, there was a great article by the Union Tribune by Phil Molnar that covered this at the time that Blackstone was going to be buying up all these properties, close to 6,000 apartments, and that that was going to be one of the biggest real estate transactions in local history. At that time, there was a lot of concern from housing advocates, um, even local politicians weighed in, San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria and uh, Tony Atkins, Senate Pro Tem Tony Atkins wrote this letter to the seller urging the seller Conrad Prebs Foundation to reconsider selling these properties because the concern at the time was Blackstone is beholden to their shareholders to raise rents and increase profits on these properties, right? And so me and my colleague Alejandro Lazo wanted to check in and basically see if two years later, if those concerns were realized. And we found, you know, largely that that they work, that rents have increased quite substantially at some of the properties and making it to where a lot of these tenants are paying, you know, larger and larger portions of their income. And, you know, in one case, we found a woman who's paying more than 86% of her income to her rent mm-hmm. um, and, and many other tenants that are paying upwards of 50% of their income to their rent to keep that roof over their head. And I remember at the time um, when they were buying up these properties, there were promises of financial literacy programs, health and wellness programs uh, within their properties. Did they ever make good on that promise? You know, I I did I have not looked into how or if those programs are already up and running at the properties. I do know that Blackstone says that they have invested a lot of money in 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 the aesthetics of the these these uh, properties, you know, landscaping, painting, that type of thing. They they say that they're investing one hundred million dollars to make these communities a prettier, better place to live. Um, they also say since they they started ownership, they've completed twenty six thousand work orders, and they have already invested forty million to make them better places to live. As far as these programs, the after-school programs that they mentioned when the when the sale was going through, I've been to a lot of these properties. You know, I just drove around to the properties talking to residents about what it was like to live there. I didn't hear anybody mention any of that. And the properties they manage are characterized as affordable housing, but they've made them less affordable since they've purchased the units. Uh, tell me about that. Right. So we have a a graphic uh, chart on our web story that we posted that shows exactly each each of the properties, what the average rent was 
at the time of the purchase and what the units are currently being listed as. And so some of them, you know, some of the, the ones in the lower income areas, the percent change is about 50%, 50 to 75%. But at some of the uh, more expensive properties that were already more expensive, the Bay Point and Pacific Beach, those have been increased by 200% the rents. Mm-hmm. Um, and so on average, they were 29 to 100% right higher than the average rents that tenants were paying in 2021. Now, of course, Blackstone says that their that their you know rents are are in line with the San Diego market, right? So Blackstone says that its apartment rents are lower than 80% of the competition in San Diego. So that most of their units are affordable to people making a median income. However, if you look at these properties, you can definitely see how much the rent has gone up. How many San Diegans call Blackstone their landlord? That's a good question. So there's 6,000 units in this 66 properties that they bought in in, uh, 2021. They also owned some before that. I think they owned maybe 1,700 before that. So, you know, anywhere between 12,000 to up to 20,000, depending on how many people live in each of those units, right? You know, you spoke with a lot of these residents. Can you give us an idea of what they're dealing with here? And we know the rents have gone up. What else? Yeah, you know, maintenance issues, mold, basically a feeling like they're being squeezed, like that not just the rent is increasing, but fees, different fees that they've never had to pay before. Maybe they didn't have to pay for certain utilities before, and now they are having to pay for them. Um, It's really interesting that there's a couple advocacy groups that are trying to put these residents in touch, basically, you know, let each resident know, you know, that there's a lot of other Blackstone residents living in the area. And the reason why that's important is because each of these properties have layers of limited liability protections, right? They're limited liability corporations. So if you went to go look up who owns the property where I live, it wouldn't necessarily come up as saying Blackstone. It would come up as saying Dorian LLC, right? Mm. And so there's these different advocacy groups that are trying to put these tenants in touch so that they can you know, work together to build some power and also compare notes on what's going on at the different properties. And earlier you mentioned that some rents have gone up 200 uh, percent. How are people making ends meet when rent accounts for so much of their expenses? Right. And that is that is the part that is the most shocking to see. You know, I talked to one woman who was, you know, she she stays on the alert for the the expired food bin at the different, you know, food for less or the different um, grocery stores that sell food that has already expired or is about to expire in a day. So she stays on alert for anything that might go on sale for that. So goes she goes shopping several times a week and can buy, you know, a couple, a couple meals at a time for her and her son. Um, it is important to note, you know, that California caps how much landlords can raise rents on current tenants, but there's no, there's nothing that regulates how much they can raise it once that apartment unit turns over. So if they can raise the rent just high enough that it's out of somebody's reach, so they have to leave, then they can flip that unit to and make it much higher rent on the next tenant. And these people, they really don't have much of a choice when it comes to leaving, do they? I think since there is such a crisis of affordable housing in San Diego, since there is so, such limited housing, it is a, it's a supply and demand issue, right? And, and someone in our article was quoted saying, you know, it's like having a diamond. It's only going to go up in property because the demand is so high and the supply is so low. And so, you know, that's one of the things that we really want to look at is we see the homeless problem. The homeless problem in San Diego is very, very visible. No one can deny that, right? 
but how many San Diego families are teetering on the precipice of homelessness and, you know, giving their last dime to these large private equity firms that, you know, the the owner took home $1.1 billion for his salary in 2020, you know, how many San Diegos are right there where they're about to be homeless? Mm -hmm. And that's very hard to figure out with data, but that's one of the things we definitely want to look at. We know there's been pushback from housing advocates, but uh, has there been any major pushback to Blackstone from politicians? I haven't seen yet the, you know, the, so because they are sitting on so much money, they can spend quite a bit of money lobbying state lawmakers and they can, they can really weigh in on any kind of laws aimed at rent control or rent protections. Um, I haven't seen much pushback yet that's specifically aimed at Blackstone. I know that there are movement, you know, Sean um, Ilo Rivera, the council president, had a renter protection bill that went through recently. So there are some movement towards trying to cap the amount that the places can increase rent. But um, as far as pushback directly, haven't seen that yet. You're listening to Midday Edition on KPBS. I'm talking with Cal Matters reporter Wendy Fry about concerns surrounding the Blackstone Property Group. Uh, Wendy, what is Blackstone saying about all this controversy? Have they responded to any request for comment? Yeah, so they they do say that, you know, their apartments, their rents are lower than 80% of the competition in San Diego market, that they don't own a large enough percentage of apartments here in San Diego to be able to to raise rents at a large scale. So they're not driving up the rent costs, according to them, across the board because they don't own a large enough percentage to be able to do that. They also say they've invested quite a bit of money already in making these buildings more aesthetically pleasing with landscaping, painting, that kind of thing. Um, They say they've invested $40 million since their ownership of these communities began and completed 26,000 work orders. And Blackstone is saying, you know, they're not driving up the rents. Uh, And that's just a side effect of the regional housing shortage there, you say. So is that true? You know, I think it'll sort of have to be time that plays out to see. We'll have to watch this over time to see. I mean, we know from the history of how Blackstone operates, right, that they view economic downturns as a huge economic opportunity for themselves to make huge profits because they're able to do that. They're sitting on so much money that like, for example, when their subsidiary invitation homes came in and bought up 40,000 single family homes during the financial crisis, all those millions of people are losing their homes and they were able to sweep in and buy them all up, right? So they get richer when the rest of society sort of suffers this economic disaster because they have the money to be able to do that. So they view housing as an asset class that will make them rich. Um, How they end up doing that. That's something we're, we're going to watch and see. And, you know, this story really highlights another major issue facing California residents, and that it, that's simply that rents are rising dramatically. So uh, where does Blackstone fit into this? Right. So rents are, are rising dramatically. And again, a lot of that is the supply and the demand, right? There's so many more people that need housing than there is housing. And so that is a such a valuable commodity that the price on it is going to go up and up and up and up and up. Um, and, and that's not going to stabilize out until there's enough affordable housing for people, for enough people to have, you know, a place to live. Um, and so, you know, again, 
they say that they're not driving up the rents on a large scale. And I think we have to take a look at what is that supply and what is the demand too. Okay. So bottom line this for me, uh, landlords buy up a property, raise the rents and effectively kick out the existing tenants. Uh, this is happening all over the country, isn't it? Yes. It, 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 and Blackstone owns properties all over the country. Um, and a lot, I mean, so what's happening is there's a consolidation of landlords, landlords in America. So just like, you know, just like with corporate media and how all the media got consolidated under a few large owners, right? There's 61 individual billionaire landlords, you know, all, you know, old white men with a collective wealth of upwards of 20. $250 billion together, right? And so they're owning more and more and more of the real estate in America. It's getting consolidated. And those top billionaire real estate investors made billions and billions of dollars more during the pandemic that, you know, while while the pandemic hit our working class essential workers, they, they made profit, like I think like $25 billion in profit during that time. I've been speaking with Cal Matters reporter Wendy Fry. Wendy, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Coming up, some cities across the region are looking at encampment bans, but can they support such a law? There's also some concern that, you know, maybe this will simply make homelessness less visible, but not really result in real solutions. Because to address homelessness, you need to house people. More on that when KPBS Midday Edition returns. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a journey through computation, data analysis, and real-world applications. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. It's hard to talk about housing in San Diego without talking about homelessness, Policymakers and advocates alike have increasingly characterized the region's homelessness problem as a housing issue first and foremost. But as the San Diego City Council considers a controversial ban on encampments, concerns remain over where these unhoused residents will be forced to go and what will actually solve the problem in the first place. Joining me now with more on the story is Lisa Halverstadt, senior investigative reporter for Voice of San Diego. She's been covering San Diego's issue with homelessness for seven years. Lisa, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to have you. So, Lisa, can you recap the scope of this proposed ban? I mean, what would be the impact of it uh, if it's passed into law? So the proposal on the table now is that camping would be banned on public property when a homeless shelter is available. But many times shelter actually isn't available. So there would need to be beds available for that enforcement to happen. Now, there are certain, they're calling them sensitive areas where camping and tents would be banned at all times. This is within two blocks of schools and shelters um, in parks, open spaces along major transit hubs and waterways. 
And in terms of the impact, um, you know, I think that this this ordinance in terms of these sensitive areas, um, it's really notable that it's it's going to have a very significant impact in particular um, in East Village, which is the longtime homeless service hub of San Diego. Um, and many areas, um, you know, in southern the southern portion of East Village and the northern portion of Barrio Logan, um, where there are multiple shelters and services, public restrooms, um, people will not be able to camp there anymore. Um, and so it will be interesting to see what happens in those areas, but also in areas outside of there where people may still want to be close to um, a public restroom or the health center that they go to at Father Joe's Villages, um, but can't necessarily camp two blocks from there anymore. There are still a lot of areas in the city where this ordinance would not go into effect. So can you explain that? Sure. So I think it's important, as I said before, um, for listeners to really understand that um, shelter often is not available, um, whether it's somebody wanting it or the police are trying to persuade someone to accept it. Um, so on a typical day in the last few months, just 23 beds were available on a typical day for a population that we learned, um, you know, in the most recent downtown San Diego partnership count totals more than 20, 2,100 people downtown and in its outskirts. Um, that's just the downtown area. Um, so when shelter is not available, um, police won't be able to fully enforce the ordinance on a sidewalk that isn't in one of those sensitive areas that I talked about before. So this could mean that um, people are able to camp um, and, you know, if it's uh, an area that's not in a sensitive place, they're not blocking a sidewalk, so it is an encroachment violation. Um, people may go to places like Golden Hill, for example, um, or even the Gas Lab Corridor, where there are large swaths of areas that um, are not marked as sensitive because um, they don't have a park or it's not within two blocks of a school or a shelter. Um, and so, you know, I think it will be interesting to see, you know, over time, I've written a lot about the impacts of enforcement um, on the homeless community. And what I often see is folks moving from place to place to avoid en enforcement um, and, and then moving back um, eventually. So I think it will be really interesting to see, you know, what sort of migration happens as a result of this. Um, but the details matter in terms of, of how the enforcement looks and works. And that in mind, let's say this proposal passes, where will people go? That's a good question. Um, so uh, Mayor Todd Gloria and Councilman Stephen Whitburn, um, who has written this ordinance, uh, they have said that they recognize that there's a need to provide a lot more shelter options for people to take advantage of. So the city plans to open two safe campsites in Balboa Park um, that would supply 500 campsites. Um, but again, as I said before, in my reporting experience, many folks will be moving to areas where they think they won't face as much enforcement. There will be a bunch of people who take the city up on the offer of those campsites or additional shelter beds, but there are going to be people that relocate themselves, if only temporarily. Um, and that could mean that they go into neighborhoods outside that service concentrated area, outside of downtown. Um, they could end up, um, you know, as I said before, in places like Golden Hill or Sherman Heights um, or even in other cities. Uh, I've seen in the past folks going to Chula Vista to avoid enforcement that's happening in the downtown area. Um, so I think uh, it, it will be very interesting to see um, if this passes where else people end up, um, you know, in places where they might not have been in the past. 
What do city leaders hope a ban could accomplish? So in the city of San Diego, um, I know uh, Mayor Gloria and Councilmember Whitburn want to see a major decrease in street homelessness that, you know, anyone who lives in San Diego knows has been surging in the city. Um, but but Mayor Gloria has said, you know, there's not going to be an overnight change um, in tents lining sidewalks if the ordinance is approved on Tuesday. Um, they have a police staffing shortage. There are also limited resources. So, uh, you know, an assistant police chief told me the city will start with cracking down on homeless camps that are in parks and near schools rather than all the areas. Um, and, you know, particularly they, I think, chose schools because uh, San Diego police expect that they can partner with school officers for enforcement near schools. Um, but the police, you know, really have said, too, that they think that this gives them more backbone than um, uh, other offenses currently on the books related to homelessness. If it passes, of course, um, they expect to try to use patrol officers to try to maintain cleared areas after they tell unsheltered people they need to move, which is something they haven't done before. And this also gives them power, especially within these sensitive areas, um, to say that folks need to move on, even if they're not necessarily blocking a sidewalk, um, which now is is really the major offense that police use um, to address homelessness. But often, you know, someone may set up their tent on a sidewalk, but it's not necessarily blocking the sidewalk. And so that really doesn't always give the police a tool to get someone to move on. You've touched on this, but, you know, yes, enforcement for this would likely be a huge challenge. So how does the city expect to tackle that? Well, um, you know, as I said, um, this this wouldn't be something that would happen overnight. Um, I do think, you know, I've thought a lot about a uh, directive that Mayor Todd Gloria gave um, last October, um, saying that police would need to order folks to take their tents down during the day. Um, and anyone who's been in downtown San Diego recently knows that that people are not taking their tents down during the day. Um, and, and that's a reflection of the lack of bandwidth and staffing that police have had. And so, you know, I mentioned, you know, that the police um, are thinking about how they partner, say, with school officers or how they use patrol officers to try to maintain areas um, that they've cleared. Um, but they also say that just the spe uh, specifics of this ordinance just make it easier for them to enforce as well. And, you know, there's a lot of pushback on this proposal. What are the major criticisms about the measure? Well, advocates argue that this is going to do more to harm the unsheltered population than than to help. Um, they argue that the city needs a lot more shelter options. You know, as I said, um, on a typical day in the last three months, there have just been 23 beds available citywide for placement. Um, and we have much larger unsheltered population um, than that, heard from a lot of advocates on that topic. Um, they also argue that the punitive approach just makes it harder to get people off the street. Um, you know, often in these enforcement operations, um, people will relocate themselves and their um, service providers that have been trying to help them get off the street will lose contact with them. Um, they often will lose belongings in the process, too. Um, so a lot of the advocates are arguing that the city really needs to focus on providing more housing and shelter um, and also specific types of shelter. Um, for example, if we have a homeless senior, they're going to have different needs than someone um, who's, you know, 18 or 20 years old um, homeless on the street. Um, so they're really pushing more for an approach of providing more help, um, you know, saying basically, uh, you know, this just could do more harm than good. 
Have you spoken to any housed residents of, of the neighborhoods with large populations of unhoused residents? I mean, what are they saying about this? Yes, I have. And uh, many, but not all that I've spoken with um, support this ordinance. Um, they argue that their neighborhoods deserve relief from the quality of life concerns that have come with such a large unsheltered population. Um, so folks in East Village and Barrio Logan in particular, for example, have talked to me about you know, sidewalks often being filled with um, homeless camps that they have to walk in the street to get around. Um, they talk about trash and open drug use, and they really want relief from that and hope that this ordinance will give them some relief. You're listening to Midday Edition on KPBS. I'm talking with Voice of San Diego senior investigative reporter Lisa Halverstadt. Lisa, Mayor Todd Gloria has been pretty vocal about the need for this measure. Has he tied this effort in any way to the housing shortage that the city faces? Well, so the mayor talks often about um, how San Diego's affordable housing shortage has really fueled our homelessness crisis. He's pushed for more affordable housing development, um, has pushed forward a number of initiatives um, to try to produce more homes. Um, he's also really rallied behind um, applications to the state for home key funds um, to pay for hotel acquisitions that could supply hundreds of homes for homeless people. Um, but in terms of, you know, this ordinance, the focus really has been more on um, shelter opportunities, more temporary opportunities, um, though the city is uh, certainly looking at trying to provide more permanent solutions for folks. How much do you think a lack of affordable housing fits into this bigger picture? Because you know, so many of the so much rather of the current discussion on housing focuses on how people in the financial margins can so easily slip into homelessness. Well, this absolutely fits in um, to the bigger picture because rents are rising. I know a lot of your listeners who are renters know that very well. Um, and people who are making minimum wage or even middle class wages or seniors with fixed incomes, um, they often do not have extra cash available to take on these sorts of increases when they're also dealing with you know, higher grocery bills, higher utility bills. Um, you know, obviously, you know, we have have had uh, gas uh, prices that are that have been higher than in the past too. And so many folks live on pencil thin margins. So if they uh, are dealing with increased rents, that's really hard. But then say that you also um, have a have a health issue that comes up in some unexpected bills. Um, so I think many more people than we realize are on the brink of homelessness or at least housing insecurity. What do advocates fear could be the impact of this encampment ban? So they really fear that homeless residents could could lose touch with people that are trying to help them move off the street. And, and some are literally concerned that lives should be, or could, I should say lives could be uh, at, literally at risk um, if, if some of these disconnections happen. So for example, um, many folks rely on uh, outreach workers who provide overdose reversal drugs. Um, it's called Narcan. Um, and, you know, many people, for example, in, in that East Village area that I, I spoke about um, in the northern Barrio Logan area, um, you know, they are a community where there's a, a larger concentration um, of users. And there are other people in that community who are not users as well, but they are able to uh, literally save each other on a regular basis. Um, and so there's a concern about if people are dispersed, maybe they don't have access to Narcan, or maybe there's not someone around to save them when they have an overdose. 
Um, there's also a concern that people may, um, you know, if they have to disperse and, and leave, um, particularly the East Village and Barrio Logan area that, that I've been talking about, that they could have a tougher time accessing public restrooms or meals that now they count on having. Um, so there's there's a great deal of concern about this um, in the advocate community. Does anyone expect that even if this ban does go through, it will have a tangible effect on homeless populations in some of the city's hardest hit neighborhoods like uh, East Village and Northern Barrio Logan, like you mentioned? There's a lot of debate about this. Um, I think, you know, it's important to note, I was really struck by um, a comment that an unhoused man gave me a couple weeks ago. I was visiting the one of the storage centers in, in the area that we've been talking about and just asking him what he thought about the ordinance. And he said, you know, I, I think that, you know, initially people are going to, to leave the area, but I, I think they're going to come back because this is just where, you know, where people can access services. Um, So meanwhile, though, uh, the mayor does argue that this ordinance should spur more people to accept offers of shelter. So and if there are more shelter options available, I I believe that people will take advantage of it. But the city needs to deliver a lot more shelter to have a a really make a serious dent in this problem. Um, And as I said before, the police have also, you know, struggled to really consistently address homeless camps. There's also some concern that, you know, maybe this will simply make homeless homelessness uh, less visible, but not really result in real solutions. Because to address homelessness, you need to house people. And I think it's really important to, to note that existing city shelters, shelters that we already have, have really been struggling to get people housed. So I did a story um, a couple months back about shelter outcomes. And I found that Um, for a period of time um, through, I believe it was a six month period through February early this year, just 11% of people who departed city shelters moved into permanent housing. Just 11%. That's a pretty low number. And it really speaks to the fact that there isn't housing for folks to go to after they get into city shelters. So if the city wants to add more shelter, it will also need to add more housing to ensure that People don't end up sitting in shelters waiting for months and even years for another place to go, which also has the effect of not opening up those beds for other people who might want them. And, you know, Lisa, data from the region's latest point in time count for homelessness was just released. Uh, Can you give us a quick recap of the results there? I think uh, uh, the results speak to what you were just saying. Yes. So um, so the point in time count is conducted every year in late January. Um, and so these are numbers from from that point in time. So in January, um, volunteers for the Regional Task Force on Homelessness counted 10,264 people that were sleeping in shelters or outdoors, and about half of those people slept outside or in vehicles. That's a 22% increase from last year uh, and is the highest total in the last 12 years. Um, I would note that this year, uh, one difference in the count was that the regional task force had access to some areas, some Caltrans property 
that in years past, um, they had had a tougher time accessing. So uh, that certainly impacts the numbers. But this is a very dramatic increase. Um, there was a 26% increase in street homelessness. But I do want to say, you know, there's often in San Diego, so much focus on this point in time count. And I think a number that is perhaps even more important and, and startling for us to think about actually is the number of people who access homeless services in a given year. And what I can tell you is that number is nearly 21,000 people in the last fiscal year, which is, you know, about double the amount of people that were counted in a single point in time. And that speaks to a huge crisis and a lot of people who need help. I've been speaking with Lisa Halverstadt, senior investigative reporter for Voice of San Diego. Lisa, thank you so much for your insight. Thanks for having me on. What do you think are good solutions to the housing crisis? Do you agree with SB 10? What about encampment bans? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Give us a call at 619-452-0228. You can leave a message or email us at midday at kpbs.org. And if you ever miss a show, check out the Midday Edition podcast. I'm Jade Hindman. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.